everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. We're talking to Professor John Beltrami today, all about an education in heart piece that he's written, which is called Management of Vasospastic Angina. It's an incredibly common condition, and I learned lots of tips and tricks about diagnosis and management of these patients, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast, and it's uh, my pleasure to chat today to Professor John Beltrami. Uh, John, maybe you could start off by introducing yourself for the Heart audience. Um, Who are you, where do you work, and what do you do there? Thanks very much, James. Um, So I'm a cardiologist uh, based in uh, Adelaide, Australia, where I work at uh, particularly two hospitals at at the moment, so the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Um, And there I work uh, as a cardiologist and as well as the professor, the Michelle Professor of Medicine um, through the University of of Adelaide. And then also in the hospitals, I'm the, the Director of Research. So have a fairly busy life because basically as a clinical academic, I'm um, seeing patients, so working in coronary care, working in outpatients, uh, but then also um, I do uh, a lot of teaching, so medical uh, student lectures, and then also a lot of research because my interest in particular is in coronary vasomotor disorders, such as vasospastic angina, which I think we're going to discuss today. Exactly. And that leads me on beautifully. Um, You've just written an educational uh, piece in heart, which is called The Management of Vasospastic Angina. But I just wondered if you could maybe start off by giving us some background to this work. Um, What prompted you to get involved in uh, vasospastic angina uh, research back in the day? Yes, it's a a long story, but basically it started when I was still doing cardiology training. And there were some patients in the cath lab that had slow progression of dye uh, on the angiogram, or what we now refer to as the coronary slow flow phenomenon. And I was intrigued by these patients that there must be something wrong with them, yet there really didn't seem to be a lot in the literature. Um, And as it turned out, this was a coronary microvascular um, disorder. And that prompted me to spend time in uh, Rome in my PhD, uh, where I was very fortunate to work with Professor Attilio Masari, um, who's certainly been one of the gurus in coronary microvascular dysfunction, but also really one of the um, sentinel people in terms of coronary artery spasm. So I learned from uh, the master um, in coronary artery uh, spasm about variant angina as it was known then and in vasospastic angina. And while we were doing studies there, he was particularly interested, as well as the groups in Europe, particularly um, through Attilio Masari, um, but uh, were, had a strong interest in this area. But then also the, the Japanese, and there were a lot of reports coming out from the Japanese, and they seemed to be different. It seemed to be much more prevalent in Japan than it was um, in the uh, Western countries. And to cut a long story short, I basically uh, got sent by Tilio Masri to work in Japan to do a comparative study in coronary artery spasm uh, between Japanese and Italians. 
uh, where we quite clearly showed that the Japanese were much more um, likely to have coronary artery spasm um, than Caucasians. And so that was in the, the mid-90s. And so that's really what cemented um, my interest in vasospastic in China, and particularly because it was so prevalent in Japan and the way that they were very rigorous in testing for it and how they were testing for it. Whereas certainly in Australia and a lot of Europe, um, provocative spasm testing was uh, was not a, uh, that common, particularly in the in the nineties. So that's what uh, got me started, and it's been a, a constant interest uh, since then. Because then I finished my PhD in that area, um, and then went on to keep looking at coronary vasomotor disorders, which includes both spasm of the large arteries and problems in the microscopic blood vessels. And let's maybe start with a few definitions. Um, in your paper, sure. you, you have a paragraph which is called structural and functional coronary disorders. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? I think most of us will be familiar with structural coronary disorders, you know, atherosclerosis in the arteries, but maybe you could expand on the differences between the two things. Yes, um, we're, we're very locked into our training in terms of structural coronary artery disease, and by that it's pre predominantly you know atherosclerotic uh, coronary artery disease. So we're all taught in it uh, in our training that if you do a coronary angiogram, if you find a seventy percent narrowing, um, that's atherosclerotic. And then we've got a, a number of treatments. We've got medical therapies, we've got balloon treatments, we've got bypass surgery to fix that up. And classically, that's supposed to be uh, cause exertional uh, chest pain. Um, but the, and so the angiogram tells us about the structure, but of course coronary arteries are not rigid pipes, they're dynamic structures. And so they can certainly go into spasm um, and that's uh, and we can see that occasionally on the coronary angiogram. Um, people who've done angiograms, you know, occasionally you see catheter induced spasm, um, but that's not what we're talking about in vasospastic angina, but to, to demonstrate that it is a dynamic uh, problem. So the thing is, is that how do you explain that you have patients that um, have quite clearly angina or classical angina, um, and yet their angiogram doesn't show any significant obstructive coronary artery disease? And in the 1960s, when coronary angiography was starting to take off, there, there are classical um, papers like um, paradoxical findings of classic angina and normal coronary arteries. How can this happen sort of thing? Um, and so um, that's sort of the background, that's sort of structural disease, which we define very well on angiography, whereas functional coronary, uh, um, functional coronary angiography is testing for dynamic movements, particularly in the large coronary arteries, so coronary artery spasm. And then the problem we also have is in the microvasculature, which we can't even see on angiography. And so we assess that with um, uh, coronary blood flow. So in the paper, there was there was figure one where we tried to distinguish this. So we talked about structural uh, coronary artery disease, which is the classic atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, and then functional coronary artery disease. So where there's like dynamic movements, and this is particularly um, spasm in the large epicardial coronary arteries, and that's um, what results in vasospastic angina. But then also, as I said, the microvessels, which you can't actually see. And um, uh, so there you need 
alternatives because you can't actually image them. So the way that we uh, diagnose those is by measuring coronary blood flow uh, and interpret it uh, functionally. And then the two disorders, large vessel coronary artery spasm and microvascular uh, dysfunction, together they form what we call the coronary vasomotor disorders. So that's, uh, and whilst we've been very good over the years at looking at um, large vessel uh, spasm, um, we really need to turn our attention to not only do a structural angiogram is what we would say, but also do a functional coronary angiogram, testing for coronary motor disorders by testing if there's inducible coronary artery spasm and if there's evidence of microvascular dysfunction because of the impaired coronary blood flow. Um, so I hope that sets the scene and I think this is important because if you've brought the patient to the, to the cath lab to undergo an invasive procedure to investigate their chest pain and then you only do a structural angiogram, I think you've only got half the picture and that's why we really need to have a bigger uptake in functional coronary angiography. And can you maybe add a little bit to the historical um, side of things, John? You talk a, a bit about Prince Metal variant angina, uh, described in 1959. Does the history stretch back further than 1959? I'm guessing it probably does. Yes, yeah, well, I'm always fascinated by Sir William Heberden's first description um, of, of angina. So that's way back in 1772 when he, uh, and it, it's a beautiful passage that I'm, I might just cover a couple of things there because it's written in old English and it's a quote from it. Um, but, but there is a disorder of the breast marked with a strong and peculiar symptoms, considerable for the, the kind of danger belonging to it and not extremely rare, which deserves to be mentioned more at length. The seat of it and the sense of strangling and anxiety uh, with which it is attended may make it not improperly uh, be called angina pectoris. They who are afflicted with it are seized while they are walking, more especially if it be uphill and soon after eating with a painful and most bitter group, which seems that it would extinguish life uh, if it were to increase or continue. But the moment they stand still, all this uneasiness vanishes. Now, for all us clinicians, we still see that same phenomenon in the clinic today, and that's classical, exertional, stable angina. And so that was in 1772. So then it was actually Edward Jenner uh, who's attributed uh, with linking that symptom with structural coronary artery disease. So in the, in the post-mortem studies showing that these people had atherosclerosis. And then it wasn't, it wasn't sort of a, a 20 years didn't go past before they started saying, but could it be spasm? And the debate started. So even, uh, even back in the 19th century. And then in the beginning of the 20th century, Sir William Osler said, no, there exists coronary artery spasm. So by the by the start of the, uh, the, the 20th century, coronary spasm was in, but by the 1950s, it had fallen back out of favour, where, um, uh, where Sir, Sir George Pickering regarded it as the resort of the diagnostically destitute. Um, <laughs> so it was out of favour then. So it's in this context, you know, in the 50s, and, it, you know, um, in the 50s, which I might add is before my time, um, in the 50s, the way we managed acute myocardial infarction is that you reduce the myocardial oxygen demand, and you had to rest the patients. And so they had best rest for six weeks, which probably caused more pulmonary emboli than it ever saved any lives. 
Um, but it's in this context that Myron Prinsmetal in 1959 publishes his pivotal paper where he talks about um, patients who, uh, he didn't use the word coronary artery spasm because otherwise he would have been, uh, uh, he would have um, been picked on for, for using that term. But he actually talks about perhaps that an underlying mechanism of an increased coronary tonus he talks about. Um, but in these 32 cases, he says these patients are different to the classic Heberden patient that they firstly had very dynamic ECG changes. So they would have ST elevation and then with nitrates, it would quickly revert. And the pain occurred at rest, not at exertion. And they, the patients would often have recurrent chest pain. And so that became known as a Prince Metal Variant Angina. The Variant Angina came from uh, <clears throat> Uh, that it was not like exertional angina, it was different to Heberden's exertional angina. And then in, in actual fact, a lot of Prince Metal's descriptions, it was patient who had atherosclerotic disease. So he was describing patients, because you know, 1959, uh, a lot of, most of his patients didn't undergo angiography, a few of them went po underwent post-mortem and they actually had atherosclerotic disease. So he's talking about patients having atherosclerotic disease and on top of that, getting coronary artery uh, spasm. Um, and uh, then it was really in the 1970s where it took off um, and Attilio Masri was a key person uh, in this work because he described that, yes, there's the classic Prince metal angina patients, but also that there's a continuum and that patients progressing onto infarct, that coronary artery spasm uh, often occurs in atherosclerosis. And sorry, I, I forgot to add that the uh, in today's clinical work, we often think of Prince metal angina, people who have normal angiograms or no obstructive coronary artery disease. Um, as I said, Prince Metal's original description was in patients who also had concurrent atherosclerotic disease, and it wasn't an, an, until the um, uh, 70s from memory that they talked about the variant of the variant, which was the patients that had normal angiograms and also had coronary artery uh, spasm or, or Prince Metal variant angina. So that gives you a, a rundown and certainly then working through um, in the 80s, it started to fall out of favour, so not many people talked about coronary artery spasm. And by the, the 90s, with the advent of thrombolytic therapy, um, you know, the angioplasty and that, coronary spasm really fell to the background. And probably in the past five to 10 years, it's made a resurgence um, because now we have better approaches in the diagnosis. Um, of coronary artery spasm, particularly in lieu of the acetylcholine provocation test that we use, which we undertake in the cath lab, which is much safer than what was done in the late 70s, early 80s, where ergonovin was given at the bedside to try and induce coronary artery spasm and resulted in some major adverse effects and was part of the thing, part of the contribution to the fall off and the interest in coronary artery spasm. So sorry, that's probably a long convoluted history of, uh, of coronary artery spasm, but uh, it's interesting to watch how the pendulum keeps swinging from one side to the other, and it's been going on for a couple of hundred years now. <laughs> no, it's great to hear the uh, historical perspective from you, John, as one of the world experts in this area. Can we talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of vasospastic angina? What are the things that we, we believe contribute to it? 
Yeah, so we we don't have certainly don't have all the answers, um, but then there's a lot of a lot of areas still in cardiology we don't have all the answers. What uh, everybody agrees to, and what's fairly clear, it's it's a hyperactive um, epicardial coronary artery is the underlying problem, um, and I think there's three different components to it. So one of the easy ways uh, I try and memorize it if you think through the layers of the the, the coronary artery. Um, the endothelium could contribute to it um, in that if you have endothelial dysfunction, then there's the potential for the vessel to be more hyperactive. Now, having said that, I've certainly documented patients that have intact endothelial function and yet still have vasospastic angina. So then if you work to the next layer, so working at the media, the vascular media, that's where the problem is, is that the smooth muscle cells are hyperactive um, and that we uh, believe that, you know, rogue kinase probably plays an important contribution um, in making those hyperactive. But obviously, if you've got hyperactive um, media and you've got endothelial dysfunction, the two have an interplay. But then the third layer, the adventitia is also important because inflammation plays a role. And one of my colleagues uh, in, in Japan, uh, Professor Hiro Shimakawa, has demonstrated, his group's demonstrated very nicely how patients with vasospastic angina have inflam uh, inflammatory cells um, in the uh, media. And then he's also developed a very nice uh, porcine model of coronary artery spasm. And the way he does that um, is he braids uh, the coronary artery with a balloon. And so giving it some endothelial dysfunction. And then he puts a, a beads that uh, release inflammatory markers uh, on the outside of the vessel. And when you have that combination and then give a drug like serotonin, into the artery, you get coronary artery spasm. So again, demonstrating this interplay between inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, and he's also been one of the key people showing how rogue kinase is involved in this process, involving the, um, the vascular smooth muscle cells. So it's the interplay of those three, but still a lot of work needs to be done in the area. Yeah. How do these patients typically present, John? So usually they present with angina so that uh, Prince Metal, I mean, in his classic paper, did a brilliant um, description talking about that the patients present with breast angina is the first thing. It's usually transient, responds well to nitrates. And some of the classic uh, features is um, that the patients typically experience nocturnal pain so that they um, there's a diurnal variation and you're more likely to get the pain at night. Now that doesn't happen in all the patients, but uh, one of the patients I saw in clinic today is, is quite unique. She only ever gets her angina in the early hours of the morning. She's never had any angina during the day and she certainly has vasospastic angina. Um, so, and the other thing that's interesting, and again, Prince Metal, and that's why his paper is, is very well written, um, he talks about that it occurs at the same time uh, each day. And like, for example, the, the, the woman I saw this morning, two o'clock in the morning, she almost set a clock by uh, that she'll wake up with, with nocturnal angina. And so that, again, these are the classic features described by Prince Metal. But I also have a lot of patients that um, uh, will have vasospastic angina and, and 
they will occasionally have one in the middle of the night. So it's not exclusive, but that these are some of the, the classical characteristics. Um, then things like um, the cold can certainly bring it on. Um, the uh, Another precipitant is hyperventilation because the Japanese often used to do a hyperventilation test to try and provoke coronary artery uh, spasm. So there's some of the classic features. Key thing is you get the angina, occurs at rest and responsive to nitrates. Um, and in Prince Metal's patients that he described, what would happen is they would come in with ST elevation, um, they'd be given nitrates and the ST elevation of the chest pain would resolve. Um, so the initial description of variant angina always included that you had to have um, angina at rest, you had to have ST elevation, which was transient and responded to nitrates. But we've since shown that these patients also can get ST depression. Uh, it's just a matter of you know, which of the vessels is involved. And if it's a large epicardial vessel with a large zone of ischemia, you're more likely to get ST elevation, but otherwise you, you could easily get ST depression. Um, so that's, um, that's why we see both. So there's probably three hallmarks or diagnostic criteria that we use, um, and that would, would be outlined in the paper, one of the tables, I think it's uh, box one is the diagnostic criteria. So as we've said in the, uh, the paper, that what you need to have is nitrate responsive angina. That's the first key uh, thing. So that's typically that occurring at rest that you would have transient ischemic uh, ECG changes, and that can be ST elevation, ST depression, or even ischemic U-wave uh, changes. Um, and then usually for, to make the diagnosis in today's uh, practice, we would like to be able to show that you actually have coronary artery spasm. And so occasionally you have patients that uh, in, in the cath lab, um, during the procedure, they have a spontaneous episode of chest pain. And, you know, as a clinician, when you're in the cath lab and the patient says, this is my pain, and you shoot the coronaries and show a 90% constriction of a blood vessel and you give intracoronary nitrates, I mean, that's a slam dunk that, it, you know, clearly this patient has vasospastic angina. But unfortunately, we don't often get that. And so we do the provocative spasm testing in the, in the cath lab where we give incremental doses of acetylcholine um, and we're looking to see if we can induce coronary artery spasm with that being defined that we constrict the blood vessel to uh, a total or subtotal occlusion, so 90% constriction. Um, and then usually to, to go with that, you, you would expect the patient to complain of chest pain on the table and you, you could see some ECG changes associated with it. So that's sort of, that's more commonly how we would uh, diagnose those patients. But uh, every, there's a spontaneous episode on, on the table to, to make it easier for you. And in terms of the differential, um, what are the main things you're trying to exclude if a patient presents with, uh, shall we say, typical symptoms of vasomotor angina? What are the things that you try not to miss? One of the things that, uh, because you know, here I am talking about ST elevation, and that's the uh, one of the hallmarks of Prince Metal variant angina. Um, but how do I know it's not a standard ST elevation myocardial infarct? Uh, and so, obviously, during uh, nowadays. 
those patients go straight to the cath lab. And um, what I'm trying to encourage a lot of my colleagues is before you get the stent out, you know, when you find a subtotal occluded vessel, before you get the stent out, just squirt some uh, intracoronary nitrates there and see if it resolves. And then you've got your diagnosis because certainly some of my um, vasospastic angina patients have been stented. And in retrospect, the occluded vessel that they saw may not have been due to atherosclerosis and a thrombus, but actually due to spasm in that vessel. Um, so, the, uh, but an ST elevation myocardial infarction, the key thing is that usually the chest pain doesn't resolve. Um, and so you certainly need to, to open up the, uh, the artery and it's sort of a once-off event. We're here, we're talking about these are patients that keep coming in with chest pain and keep having recurrent episodes of ST elevation, which resolves um, with, uh, with nitrate therapy. And a lot of them, um, surprisingly, don't actually then even have a troponin rise, um, uh, you know, uh, even though sometimes when they will have 20 minutes of, of pain um, to show you that uh, the, the system does have some resilience. So that's probably one. But then if you're talking about people that present with recurrent episodes of chest pain, um, the other possibility, you know, and you've done an angiogram, you don't find any obstructive coronary artery disease. The other possibility is, is this microvascular dysfunction. And that's where the functional coronary angiogram become, is particularly helpful because it helped delineate is the problem in the large arteries, the epicardial arteries with epicardial coronary artery spasm, or is the problem in the coronary microvasculature? And it's worthwhile to um, differentiate. It's very important to try and differentiate those. And then a third one that's worthwhile giving consideration to, although it's, it's um, uh, usually much much easier to distinguish, is myopericarditis. Um, and so that, you know, or even just pericarditis, they have recurrent episodes of chest pain. You could have ST elevation from the pericarditis. And so you just need to distinguish those. But usually on the history, you, you know, they are often pleuritic, pleuritic pain, positional pain, so you can distinguish them. And can you just run through a sort of high level um, figure two, which is the the diagnostic and management pathway? I think we've yeah. we've maybe touched on most of the diagnostic pathway, but perhaps this uh, concept of a functional coronary angiogram would be worth uh, just a couple of minutes. Yep, sure. The um, so the first probably if I had to say one thing underlying figure two is be suspicious and think of the possibility that this could be um, a coronary, a coronary vasomotor disorder because the problem is that the standard thing is we do our structural angiogram, it's normal, therefore it's not your heart, therefore we can discharge you. So I think that's the, is be suspicious. But then following on from that diagram, you know, the question to ask is this nitrate responsive angina? Um, you know, and particularly if it's a younger person, then you're more likely not to have um, atherosclerotic disease and so you might be a bit more suspicious but then to ask things you know like does the pain wake you up at night you know uh, because then that like particularly in Japan that for that that is a key question for them if you have uh, angina and you wake up in the middle of the night with pain for my Japanese colleagues that means you've got vasospastic angina until proven otherwise the other thing that I might just mention with that is that uh, the risk factors for coronary artery spasm, probably the one that we're quite confident in is, is cigarette smoking, uh, whereas there's some studies that suggest that lipids might be important, uh, but certainly hypertension, diabetes are not uh, things that predispose you to having coronary artery spasm. 
So then following on from um, that uh, figure two, um, the thing is, is to think about the diagnosis uh, and be suspicious for it. And then um, as we often will uh, take them to the cath lab, if they, and then I've divided into, if they have a spontaneous episode of spasm on the table, that makes the diagnosis easy. Um, but more often than not, uh, you're not going to find that and so that you have to consider doing provocative um, acetylcholine um, spasm testing and so that's where we talk about a functional coronary angiogram and then we went through the the the, the three criteria that uh, you know you need to have uh, nitrate responsive angina um, that you need to have ischemic ecg changes and that to demonstrate that you've got um demonstrate that you've got coronary artery spasm on the on the cath lab table then turning to the therapy um, probably a couple of key things there so firstly obviously you want to avoid any precipitants for the coronary artery spasm so if the patient's a smoker it's very important to give up um, the thing that you need to consider is patients taking any sympathomimetic agents and so some of the ones that are seen occasionally is patients using cocaine can produce coronary artery spasm. Um, the interesting thing for, for me always has been, um, do they do people who take cocaine get coronary artery spasm because they're predisposed to it, or is it just to do with the dose of the, 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 the cocaine? Um, so using those sort of things. And then there's some of the um, uh, anti-migraine therapies. You just need to watch out if you've got a predisposition for coronary artery spasm, um, then some of those sympathomimetic agents may induce, um, uh, potentially could induce coronary artery spasm. And then one of the things that's been described is that there's an association between patients who have azospastic angina, who also um, have a predisposition for Raynaud's phenomenon and migraines, uh, all regarded as, as vascular disorders. Um, and then moving to the therapy, probably the most important thing to remember when we're talking about vasospastic angina is that calcium channel blockers are cardioprotective. So very early on in, in a Japanese study, they showed that, um, so this was when verapamil was first becoming available, that if you had patients um, on calcium channel blockers as compared with nitrates alone, calcium channel blockers were, were a uh, independent determinant as to whether you would progress on to an acute myocardial infarction. And so that's why they're, they're cardioprotective, whereas nitrates are not necessarily cardioprotective, although it is, is useful in the treatment of, um, of vasospastic angina. And then finally, you've got, to, you've got to try and treat the angina. So we have a number of agents that, um, uh, that, that we can use for that. And have you got any success or tips for successful therapy in terms of starting doses? What do you tend to use in terms of what's your favorite calcium channel blocker and uh, tips and tricks? As I said, you need to start off with a calcium channel blocker. So uh, depending on which you prefer, you know, verapamil or diltiazem, which then also uh, have a, a bit of rate reduction uh, so that if the patient's also complaining of palpitations, that, that's helpful. But one thing I will point out and people need to um, remember is that people who have vasospastic angina certainly can develop malignant arrhythmias because of a number of patients that have got defibrillators because they had either a cardiac arrest um, or they had episodes of VT during the um, during the angina. So that that's uh, an important consideration. 
Um, so if they complain of uh, palpitations, presyncope during their chest pain, uh, then it's very important to, to get on and, and treat them with the calcium channel blockers um, uh, uh, quickly. Um, and whereas amlodipine, of course, doesn't have a reduction in, in the heart rate, but uh, in my hands, at least, it seems to reduce the blood pressure a little bit more. And then I have uh, people complaining more about ankle edema with that agent. So that, that sometimes limits what you, what you can do there. And then the, uh, so that's sort of first level then going on uh, to, to nitrates um, and so um, certainly the calcium channel blockers on their own aren't effective introducing nitrates but an important thing is to make sure you've got a nitrate free interval because there's been some uh, studies published to suggest that nitrates might even be dangerous in this condition but I think that's in the context that they didn't use it in, in terms of a, a nitrate uh, free free interval. And then probably uh, another thing, uh, another medication which has um, really not um, been utilised as much as it should is uh, a drug called uh, celestazole. So I will admit that this is off-label use. Um, so celestazole is an antiplatelet agent that's used in the treatment of peripheral artery disease. Um, and a Korean group did a very nice study uh, about eight years ago now where they showed patients that had vasospastic angina, so proven vasospastic angina, who were unresponsive to the calcium channel blockers, um, that celestazole reduced um, the angina frequency in these, in these patients. Um, and certainly utilising it, have found it a very effective agent. We do need to be uh, careful with it because it, it's reported to potentially prolong the QT interval and then it also interacts with some of the um, calcium channel blockers. So you need to um, read through before you start prescribing it and, and look closely. Do so at your own risk, as you say, if it's uh, if it's unlicensed <laughs> in specialist hands. How often do you need to send people, John, for, for more invasive treatment? You talk here about stellate ganglion block uh, and that type of thing. Is it is it something that you, you see all the time or is it in really in the rare cases? No. So in, in, in my hands, um, then patients uh, who are failing celestazole, then the next thing I'm looking for alternative me me um, therapies such as stellate ganglion block. And certainly I've had very variable responses to that. Some patients, it's worked very, very well. I mean, um, certainly got a patient that had one two years ago and has had very little angina since then as compared with being quite disabled. And then I'll have other patients that it seems to work for a couple of months and then you have to do it again. Um, and then some patients where it's had very little effect. So um, I think that you know calcium channel blockers effective but here we're talking about the patients that really refractory angina and looking to um, as an alternative therapy and the interesting thing is you know does the stellate ganglion block work because you're blocking the uh, afferents and you're reducing the pain feedback to the brain or is it working on the efferents and so that you're getting the nerves producing less spasm in the arteries because the patient who's worked very well on says he can feel that he's got chest pain, but it doesn't hurt. Um, and so <laughs> they can tolerate it more. That's interesting. I, I would hope it's the, the latter, that it's reducing the amount of spasm. But I guess, uh, yeah, I guess it's as long as the patient is pain-free, I suppose that's all that matters. 
Yeah, yeah. No, he, he's wise enough to know that he still needs to take his nitrates to get it under control. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that was interesting, and uh, he's probably one of the only ones that the others tend to report that they get when it works that that they get less angina. So yeah. that's uh, interesting. And just one final thought: Do you think these patients are better off, um, at least maybe in the diagnostic phase, being managed in a in a specialist centre? I mean, here in the UK, we have three or four centres that really specialise in this. Or do you think it should be up to the individual cardiologist to kind of make the diagnosis and start treatment? Right. The first message is that cardiologists need to think about the possibility. Mm-hmm. Now, take an option that you've had a patient that you're absolutely convinced has got angina. Um, you then, and they might even have nighttime angina, which makes you more suspicious. You do the angiogram, don't show obstructive coronary artery disease. You might say, well, empirically, I think that he has vasospastic angina and start him on calcium channel blockers. And like I've got patients that you start them on calcium channel blockers and they think this is the best drug they've ever had in the world because they never have pain, they never have any more pain, which is uh, uh, terrific when that happens. But Unfortunately, you then come across the problem that, right, I've given them verapamil, diltiazem, um, and they're still getting pain. So is it that it's um, not coronary or it's evolving the microvasculature and I've got to think of a different strategy, or is it that I just haven't given enough uh, and I need to consider more agents? So that's where you need to progress on to functional coronary angiography and do spasm testing. Now, to do that, I think in the current practice that that needs to be in specialised centres that are experienced at it. Um, uh, Technically, it's not hard, but you need to know A, what you're looking for, and B, uh, it's pretty nerve-wracking when you give acetylcholine down a left coronary artery and the left main disappears uh, suddenly. Um, So that you need to watch out for that. When you inject the right coronary artery with acetylcholine, going back to our physiology and the muscarinic receptors there, you suddenly get a a fairly profound bradycardia. And so that you usually have to put a temporary lead in before you inject the right coronary artery. So it's doing those those sort Mm. of things. But as it becomes more widely practiced, then certainly once people have had some training in that and some experience at it, then, then I think it could be more broadly used. Um, and then there's the, the patients with refractory angina, which are difficult to manage. And so uh, I think, again, it's probably better in uh, people who have more experience because you develop the experience in looking at different alternative therapies because in some of those patients will use extremely high doses of calcium channel blockers to try and get them under control. Um, and some of those, uh, and the very high doses, so I'm talking about doses like 480 milligrams of verapamil a uh, day to try and uh, control their angina. So I, I think that people need to be experienced at using um, uh, that sort of uh, dosage and that rather than sort of the uh, person, this is the first patient they've ever looked after with, with vasospastic angina. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it, John. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get your um, perspective on this field. Um, I know you've made the paper open access already, so everybody can download it and read it uh, while they're listening along. And uh, thanks once again for your time. Thanks very much, James. Thank you.